All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Bottom Up Sales Pod. We're live with Marissa Bell, and couldn't be more excited to have her today to reintroduce my co-host. We have Morgan Heller here, and the four of us actually all met at Dropbox when we were cutting our teeth there. I'm going to try not to make this a Dropbox reunion. It's funny, though, because when you, you talk to anyone who worked there from 2013 to 2015, it's unanimous that it was a special place with very special people. And amongst that cohort, Marissa was always leading the pack, which is why I'm even uh, more looking forward to having her on the show today. Uh, I remember our COO at the time, Dennis Woodside, would be putting slides up in the all hands, trying to get the sales team pumped up. And Marissa's name was always on there. Uh, so we, uh, we're going to dive into uh, some of uh, the things that made her successful and the amazing journey that she's had. So welcome, Marissa. Where, uh, where are you calling in from? First off, that's so funny you talk about that because I was just remembering last night that exact story. And Dennis, when I was at Dropbox, looked at me one day. He's like, do you know how you're performing here? And I said, I have no idea how I'm doing here. He's like, you are one of our top performers at Dropbox. I was like, I, that's amazing. I had no idea. So uh, I love that story. I'm calling in from San Francisco. I'm in the marina. Awesome. Well, I think that's probably a good starting point for today. Uh, we talk a lot about a PLG motion, and Dropbox is a pioneer, if not the pioneer, of uh, of a PLG way of selling. So why don't you start telling us how you ended up at Dropbox and uh, some of your learnings and experience there? Yeah. So I, out of school, got into a sales role at a search engine optimization company. My dream was to work at Google, and I thought, if I can master the way their search engine works, I'll most definitely get a job at Google one day. And so I was at Bright Edge. I was there for about a year and a half. And then I got a message on LinkedIn one day from a recruiter saying, you can highly recommend it. We'd love to talk to you. And I'm like a year, a year into my sales career. I was like, wow, I can highly recommend it. This is awesome. I come to later learn that Kyle Parrish just found me randomly on LinkedIn, submitted me to the interview process, had never met Kyle before, but somehow like, thank God he found me. And I went through the interview process. I remember sitting with OJ. He was my final interviewer, former CRO at Asana. And OJ is just chatting with me and a cookie cart starts rolling by. He's like, hey, do you want to stop our interview and have some cookies and milk? I was like, this is insane. Like, what is this company? And so we sit, we have some cookies and milk. We talk about sales and got the job. And it was, it was amazing. And when I joined Dropbox, it was the Google I, had, I was I was dreaming of. I was like this company that cares so much about culture and product and people. Like it was it was such a dream of a job when I joined. By the way, for anyone listening, that's the power of a three thousand dollar referral bonus. Is that's Kyle <laughs> Parrish prospecting and hustling to try to fill up the funnel. And I, if if you ask him, I think he'd be honest enough to say, yeah, that referral bonus was probably motivational, not just build the team and build a better culture. But so anyone listening, yeah, referral bonuses are, are a good way to incentivize the team. But I mean, we benefited so much by finding one of our best sellers ever. I mean, I think you're even being modest, Marissa, when you say that Dennis said one of our best sellers. In my mind, you were always the top. And not only were you the top of the leaderboard, but it was impossible to think about catching you. It's more try to keep pace with what Marissa's doing. But if you think you're going to beat her somehow, keep dreaming. Um, and actually, that's one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, Marissa, is 
just your your process, and I, I think you probably have a similar process uh, as a manager, but as a seller, I was always very curious how you thought about building a week. You know, I, I felt like you were very organized, methodical, and, and committed to sort of, okay, I have to do this much work every day, every week. Is is there something to that? How did you kind of stra- strategically make sure that you were always going to blow out your number? Yeah, I, in the beginning, was very much activity. Everything for me was prioritization and activities. So at Dropbox, PLG, I didn't want to overcomplicate it. And so I just looked at where is there the most usage of Dropbox. And I would look at like the Inc. 500 and look at these fast growing companies that had some usage and it would probably go grow because their companies are growing. So I'd think about prioritizing how I'm going to spend my time, not overcomplicate it with like what my rubric was for what's important to go after. And then in the beginning, I was just a ton of activities, which is different in the enterprise space where you have to be more customized. It was also 2013 where you could send an email titled quick question and say, who's the person who handles this? Like it's become a lot more complex with sending emails and what people expect from sales people. And, but at that time, like I was coming from a company where it was 500 emails a week, a hundred calls a day. Like that's what I did at Dropbox. And when we joined Dropbox, there was no quota. So I was just kind of like doing these activities because I also had a lot of fun with it. And I also thought that's what I had to do. And it ended up working out really well for me. And then as I grew in my career at Dropbox, I was a bit more laser focused. And I would not only go after companies that had activity, but I would literally look up who has accounts and, and see which titles they were. And if it was like VP and above, I'd message them directly. It was something a little bit more customized. So I, yeah, I tried to do this like low hanging fruit approach and then I became more laser focused over time. I think one of the things that you did well uh, going back to that time was being able to create a really compelling business case uh, by figuring out not only who was using the product, but then like who you needed to get in front of, because not all leads are created equal, right? I'm sure there were lots of times that you probably got in touch with some freelance photographer who just decided to use Dropbox at their company. And and that's not necessarily the person that's going to champion you to, to what you need. So I'm curious when you were approaching those accounts with all of the leads and usage there, uh, how would you actually size up those companies? Yeah. Some language I've recently become re-familiar with is this idea of a coach, a champion, or an economic buyer. And I think typically we get confused about who's a coach and who's a champion. A champion is someone who carries influence and has access to your economic buyer. And it's also someone who's going to be advocating for you and your business uh, to become a to become a partner. And a coach is someone who loves your product and loves you, but they don't carry influence. And I think that distinction is really important when you're thinking about who are you talking to, which leads are you going after, and you have to test them along the way. Is this a coach? Is this a champion? And so for me at Dropbox, I, I didn't realize that's what I was doing. Now that I have that language and I know this, I know what to call it. I realized that's what I was doing. But at the time, that that is what I was doing. And I realized I had a CIO as my champion at Cal State Fullerton. And then there were other people who were the economic buyers, but I would, I would latch onto these champions and then work on these deals together, prove out the business case, what's the impact of what we could offer, what's the risk of not doing anything. 
get them really excited about what a partnership could look like and then get the deal in place? I think just to kind of translate a lot of our audience and a lot of founders that I talk to, they have a PLG product. They have a bottom-up product where people can sign up for free and become users. And they're always very curious, how do we layer on sales to this equation? And then once they start hiring sellers, the question is like, very broadly, how do you do PLG sales? What does it mean to do PLG sales? And I'm curious to get your take on this, Marissa, but it sounds like what you're describing is you use your advantage of there's natural usage, not just as leads, like I'm not just selling to these folks, but I'm using them to put a business case together as Libster described. Is that what PLG selling means to you? Like using the install base and usage not just as a lead source, but as a strategic, uh, strategic source behind the scenes. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. I think once you get to a certain deal size, so like over 15, 20 K, or once you're selling to a certain company size over a thousand, 2000 people, you need a salesperson to be your guide. And like our role as sense maker is like, that is the role of a salesperson at a PLG company and probably any company because the reality, and we know this from what everyone's talking about in this space, is your customers have already done the research on you. And so at a PLG company, you just have the added benefit that there are people who already love your product. And so talking to them, learning about the business case, understanding the impact we're making is a huge part of taking advantage of these leads and being very customer first. So like, what do they care about? How can we help them? And then it's your job as the salesperson to help put together the business case what are the negative consequences of the current state? What are the positive business outcomes of the future state? And how can you also as a salesperson help them get to the economic buyer and navigate the procurement process? And I think that's, yeah, a big part of what it's like. Awesome. Hey, Marissa, um, one thing I'm curious about is Dropbox was a very horizontal PLG uh, product. Could be used by any function, but was typically purchased by IT. Figma, I know you have a lot of personas you work with, but it's primarily a design software. How does selling a horizontal PLG uh, product like compare and, and, and kind of differ from selling more of a, a focused functional one in Figma? So the question is, how, how is it different selling to one persona versus many personas? Exactly. Yeah. And it might be interesting. I know you were, you were an IC at Dropbox and lead a function at Figma. Like, I'm just curious if it's easier to, to train a team of sellers when they're focused on a specific function. Um, they might find pattern recognition more quickly, but I'd love to get any thoughts you have on that topic. Yeah, it is. I'd say the sales motion at Figma is evolving because we started as a design product. We have a collaborative product development platform that solves the end-to-end -end solution for building products. And it typically yep. was for designers. But now that we've introduced FigJam, which is a collaborative whiteboarding product, we can sell to people outside of just design. We can sell to the entire product org. And sometimes it even extends to a wall-to-wall -wall deployment to HR and legal and all these other teams. And it's really hard. And in, in addition to different personas, we also are evolving who we're selling to. So we used to sell to design managers, design directors, but now because we're asking for bigger contracts, because we have more products, we have to go higher. So what does the VP care about? What does the CIO care about? 
And I think that is very difficult and it takes a new motion and you have to have cross-functional teams supporting you in enablement and PMM to help you understand what is the value that we're delivering. And so I think it's a lot of how you bring that to life is a lot of coaching. I think it's leaning on cross-functional teams. I think it's talking more to your customers, asking questions. So there's like, you're, you're always learning when you're selling to these different types of verticals. I know we've been talking a, a little bit about experience at Dropbox, experience at Figma. One thing that I think would be really interesting to hear from your perspective is actually that transition that you made from an IC into a leadership role. I can tell you that uh, when I went through that, full stop, hardest uh, pivot and, and transition I've had to make in my career. Um, it's, uh, yeah, just a very different uh, job and a different way that you're, you're thinking about things and needing to support other people in addition to yourself. Um, how... Uh, how did that go for you? And would love to, uh, to hear about maybe some of the challenges you faced when going through it. Yeah, it's, it's, as you said, it is a hard job. And I think especially at a startup, it's, it's, it's even harder because you're moving into a new role and you're coming from a place where you knew everything. You had so much confidence. You, you were in control of your own destiny to a role that's completely new to you where you have no confidence and you don't really have a control over how the deals ultimately are played. And if you're at a startup, you're also trying to figure out your sales motion and you don't really know if what you're saying is working. And so for me, I went into management at a 30 person company and we had we were just figuring out what what are we doing? How do you sell carpooling to the U.S.? Like that's it's a very complicated task. And so this is at Scoop when you first became at manager. Scoop. Okay. Yeah. And so for me, I think what was so hard is being in a role where I went from having all the answers at Dropbox to being at Scoop, where I was in a new role and I didn't have the answers. And how can I be leading my team when I don't know everything? And when I was in that role for the first time, I was thinking, like, I just, I, it, like, totally in my head, like, imposter syndrome is real. And it's, as I look back now and in my leadership role now, it it's, it's okay to not have all the answers. It's, it's almost preferred that you collaborate with your team and you get people's thoughts and you build better together. And so I think that that learning was so tough at Scoop. And fortunately, the leadership team at Scoop was amazing. And I had great mentors outside of Scoop as well. And it just knowing you're not alone and that this is normal, I think is so critical in the early days and really like throughout your entire career to have that. Yeah, hey, there's, there's a specific... Oh, go ahead, Heller. No, this is a super tactical question, but I, I, all three of us struggled with, with that transition. Um, and you mentioned you had fantastic mentors. Like, very tactically, how did you come across these mentors? Did, did you ask them to mentor you? Do you just reach out when you need help? Uh, what does that look like? I definitely asked. Yeah. I asked, and then I those mentors referred me to other mentors. And something that one of them shared with me is, he was like five levels above me. So he put me in touch with someone two levels above me. And that was really helpful to have someone who's a little bit closer. And for every session I had, I always come prepared. I gave them like, this is what I'd love to talk about today. So that that was really meaningful for me. And now I'm in a women's group that a former boss put me in touch with and they're they're incredible. And so, and then it's just, it's showing up. So once someone gives you their time, it's showing up, having a plan, being respectful. But I definitely asked, and I'm really, really glad I did. And people at Figma, there's one woman in particular who did the same for me. And I just, it takes a lot of courage 
uh, but people are willing to help. And I love being asked. And I also appreciate when people take me up on my ask. One interesting aspect of this transition from seller to manager is when you're a seller and you get promoted at the same company to manage, you have all this knowledge about the product and your buyer personas. You've done the job. So it's really a, a pretty smooth transition to coach new sellers with the same product to sell it. But what happens is it sounds like at Scoop, you got hired as a manager directly having, and, and inherently you're not selling that product as a, you know, as an IC. And then the same thing happens at Figma where you join as a manager, you're not selling the product as an IC. So I guess a couple questions from this, but the big one is what do you think are kind of the key skills? Like we we've established your, you were excellent at crushing quota. And we saw this firsthand and I assume your team channels your sales knowledge, but kind of what, what are the main inputs as a manager to drive sellers to succeed, knowing that it is different from what you use to succeed as an IC? One thing I've always latched onto is people, everyone is different. So you coach them based off of where they are. And for me, what I try to do is create an environment that's safe and inclusive and give space for creativity, collaboration. I, I remember at Dropbox when I was, I went to the New York office, I was there for two years and it was super small and we didn't have a great connection back to SF all the time. I felt very removed. So I, I went in, I went in Salesforce. I was like, what emails are people sending? If a deal was closed one, I'd literally look at all the activity history and be like, whoa, this deck is amazing. Like that's how I taught myself by just kind of like doing that work. And at Figma, what I want to create is being more proactive in how you're sharing wins. So I try to create that environment of people sharing. You're not a lone wolf. Like let's learn together so we can win together because we are on a really bold mission of what we're trying to accomplish here at Figma. And then I think it's seeing your people soar. And I have one person on my team. He started two weeks after me and seeing his career take off. He's a billion percent better seller than I am. And so I just, I, I like creating the space. I like letting him try. And if he isn't seeing success, it's just having him know that this is a safe place to fail and you're going to get back to it. And he closed our first million dollar deal last quarter. Like he's totally, I mean, he's changing the way we work at Figma. And I think that's like that environment's really critical for success. That's amazing. And quick kind of like comment on that. Cause I think as a, as a great seller, the instinct is to grip the wheel really tightly and be really in control of everything that you're doing and push really hard and exert a ton of effort. And it sounds like the distinction you're making is, yes, that's true. Ideally, ICs do that. But the manager needs to create an environment where they feel free to approach their work in a creative way. And the, it's almost like that degree of gripping the wheel really tightly as a manager, your instinct is that doesn't work because it creates this like sense of I have to do my job one way. But meanwhile, there's a bunch of different ways to get to quota and people will be more excited and be happier in their role and be more effective if you allow them to figure out the way that works best for them. Am I kind of hearing that correctly? Yeah, I think that's mostly it. I mean, I think that that is definitely where Figma has been over the last two years. And I think there will always be an element of that moving forward. 
with Figma, we have a little over 700 employees. Sales is 150 employees. We want to be at 450 salespeople by the end of 2023. And so we're at a place now is like, building process for scale. So there is an element of, we just rolled out a new sales methodology, having a common language, coaching to like certain things you have to do. The way you do that though, is it's, it's as they say it, it's like a guide, it's not a script. And so there's always an element of, of course, bring, bring what you have to the table and, and, and allow the space for creativity. But now we're also moving to, you also need to make sure there are some specifics in there, like uh, we use command of the message that so you have to have the before state, negative consequences, after state, and positive business outcomes. Like that has to be there. Uh, but how you bring that to life might, is going to differ from one, from one rep to the next. I, I love that. There are going to be some non-negotiables. But if you're really going to unleash the potential on people on your team, you can't uh, truly dictate the way that they sell. I mean, the four of us all have very distinctly different ways of selling. So it is, it's interesting to think about that from a manager's perch. Well, Marissa, you've done a ton of hiring at Scoop and at Figma, and sounds like even for the the year ahead, there are going to be a lot of people to bring on. How do you think about the right profile, and what are some of the things when you are talking to candidates um, and uh, and going through that hiring process that you're looking for? Hiring is so hard, and I wish it was a science, and I wish it was this easy, like, you put in these inputs and you get these outputs, and it just, it's the most frustrating thing, but it isn't, and there there's an art and a science to hiring, and so over the past couple of years, we've evolved it, and we have turned it as into as much of a science as possible by aligning on, like, the skills and competencies, characteristics, uh, but something that we're trying to pay really close attention to now is it's not just what you say, but it's also how you say it and paying really, really close attention to that for the folks we're looking for. And I'd say like what's evolved over time is this concept of like a Renaissance rep having a unique background. Like that is definitely where we were two years ago. And now I just went through this analysis of our team of like, what are the top performers doing? Like where, what are the shared characteristics of the folks doing well? And we've gotten a little tighter on like what we, what we need to see what does an up-and-comer profile look like? What does a true enterprise rep profile look like? And now we've created a whole interview process. What signals we want to look for? What's a good answer, bad answer? And so that that is where we need to be now. And we're trying to turn it into as much of a science as possible, uh, but also training on like the art of it, which is paying attention to how a candidate might answer a question. Makes that. total sense. I, I always like asking, is there any stage in the interview process that you have at Figma that no matter where you go in your career, you will replicate that and want to bring with you uh, in future places? We are definitely, I will always have the like disco demo section always. And not just the disco demo, but like then the 15 minutes of providing feedback and coaching after. Because seeing how they take coaching, meaning can they absorb the feedback you just gave them and apply it in the moment. And like that has been the best thing we've ever done at Figma. And you can't fake that. Like a salesperson can say the right answer and get by, but you can't really, you can't fake the presentation. And so that part I think is really powerful. Hey, and Marissa, so you're saying that during your interview process, you have uh, candidates do a mock discovery and a mock demo, then you give them feedback. And did I catch it right that you have them 
then apply that feedback and, and try parts of it again? Yes. And we totally make it humid. Like I think yeah. sales is fun. Like this is all fun. Yeah. And when you're mm. in an interview experience, like you're just with another salesperson enjoying them in their career. And so we try to be like, yeah, this is an awkward format and we're, we're kind of asking a lot of you and let's not take ourselves too seriously, but we totally do. We're like, Hey, tell me two good things that went well and two things you want to improve. And then they're, people are pretty self-aware. So then they pick one yeah. thing that they thought didn't go well. And then we say, let's dig into that. At Figma, this is how we think about it. How would you do it again if we, if you could? And then they do it again. And we just hired a woman who nailed that part. She was amazing. And it was really tough. Like you could see she was really, and, but she put her full heart into it. And I messaged her after. I was like, the way you handled that with so much courage said everything. Like that was amazing. So I think that part's really key. If you're yeah, having that's... cookies and milk while you do it, then that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so with all that interviewing, um, uh, you guys are, are hiring a, a lot. You mentioned Figma is growing from 150 to 400 uh, plus reps over the next yep. year plus, which is amazing. And, and thinking back, I remember when Kyle Parrish started there, I think he was the head of sales, but also the only sales rep in, I believe, 2018. So you've gone from one to 150 reps and not too long of a time. Um, I imagine it's been kind of crazy. Um, what what have you seen from the, the reps, the managers uh, that have thrived during the, the past several years of hyper growth at Figma? And I, I guess um, similarly, potentially from your time at Dropbox, the, the folks that, that, that did well um, in, in that type of growth. Yeah. One, Kyle is also the reason I'm at Figma and I have learned so much from him. And I think he has many superpowers, one of which I think is finding great people and building a culture where they can really soar. So I've learned a ton from him, not the least of which is the importance of mindset and, and being willing to like really taking a step back and seeing the forest through the trees. And so I think that the reps who have seen success in addition to sales fundamentals and being ambitious and putting in the work, I think a big part is your mindset. And there is a lot of change that happens with scale. And that's hard because you're going from a place where there's no process. You're driving a big impact. You get to change how you do certain things to building for scale and process and Salesforce stages and command of the message and fill in your comm fields. Like there's like, there's so much that's emotionally taxing. And I, with my team, I'm so grateful that they feel safe to talk to me about how they're feeling. And I think it's very important to create the space for that. And then it's on them to decide if they are going to be here for where we're going next. And so I think the reps that are doing well are, the ones that have a really strong mindset and the team of folks at Figma that have been here really do. Like they're super impressive to be at a place where there's no process to where we are now and being a multi-product company. So I think that part is, is really important. Um, so here's my question. How would you evaluate a sales role or how would you eva- uh, how would you advise a friend to evaluate a sales role? Um, is it about the product? Is it about the people? Is it all the above? I'm just curious I think sellers have a really good mindset into what companies are about to be successful because you can put yourself in the, the, the mode of, could I sell this? So I'm just curious what that kind of secret sauce is for you. 
I think it depends on the person and what's important to them and what they're, what are they optimizing for? And I, when I talk to candidates, careers are long. And so I think if you can't, when I talk to a candidate, I always want them to come to Figma, but also that might not be the best fit for them. And so when I talk to someone, I try to ask them what's important to them and for me, what's important to me is being in a company where I'm very passionate about the product. And because I know for me as a seller, I can't sell something I don't believe in. And not every salesperson is that way. Like some people can sell anywhere and that's awesome. That's not me. So for me, if I were giving advice, I could at least share my experience that that's important to me. And I do think the people are also critically important depending on what you're optimizing for. If you're optimizing for learning and you're trying to grow as much as you can in the next couple of years, optimize for people and people who you'll learn from around you. And then I think you also want to think about the TAM, like the market opportunity, like can this keep growing just because you might, you probably want to be at that company for a while. And if there's not a large addressable market, then maybe that's not the right company for you. Yeah, that's, that's great feedback. Are, are there any um, uh, factors that candidates potentially overweight when they're deciding which company to join? I think a lot of candidates overweigh the OTE number. And I think that's not always, I mean, it, it again goes back to what you're optimizing for. An OTE, a non-target earning that you may or may not hit, I think is deceiving. And it, it depends where you are in your career. But when you're in your 20s, early 30s, like you probably want to optimize for learning and growth and both OTE and title, like optimize for learning and growth. And those things will take care of themselves later. And so I think those would be two things that if you can't as much as you can, and it really takes some self-reflection. You, you spoke about the importance of needing to believe in what you sell. I'm I'm wondering if you have like a framework yourself when you're looking at companies. Clearly, you've had an amazing track record and you've picked quite well. So whether it's founder experience, total addressable market, how do you think about the way that you evaluate an opportunity? I definitely think I've been lucky. And it's uh, a lot of my decisions have been because of Kyle, which is crazy. Like he is. <laughs> Follow Kyle Parrish. The, uh, <laughs> the ultimate SaaS advice. Yeah. Stop but I, I think, I think what's at the root of that really is you People follow people they trust. And Kyle was the person who introduced me to Figma. And then I did my research on who's investing in Figma. What are customers saying? Where could this be going? This is the decade of design. Design has never been more important. Digital experiences overnight, especially with COVID, have become the way we interact with companies. So like, it, it's very important to like have the people be like at the very tip of the spear. And then you have to do your research. And so... Yes, in all seriousness, Kyle is the model you should follow always. But when you don't have access to him, then I, I think it's really important to do your research on the company, their investors, and and where you think they're going. Absolutely. So, makes sense. Ahead, one question I have, I know we're getting close on time, is how do you advise your team of sellers to go into an install base? I guess, what is that process like? Is it start with a list of usage, 
I'd love to understand the process at Figma and tactically speaking, how you lead your team to generate pipeline within a PLG company with such a fervent user base like Figma. My segment at Figma is enterprise. So it's companies with 2000 employees and above. And so how I'll answer this is going to be different than maybe an SMB or commercial segment. So just want to clarify kind of my frame of mind where I'm coming from. When we started, when I started two years ago, it was very much like go where the usage is. Not only signups, but also active users was a big part of how we focused our time. And over time, while there still is usage in these enterprise accounts, it's very much it's, it's not as compelling as other segments in SMB in the commercial space. And so we, we do definitely look at those signals of signups or for propensity to buy, but we also think about propensity for size mm-hmm. and think about the industry, the company size. And so for us, there's a couple key industries we know we want to target, especially based off of where the market is, where digital transformation is happening. And so I, I, it's on two vectors of both propensity for size and propensity to buy. And yeah. that's how we ask to prioritize for the team. So key, that's, that's great. And a key distinction I think you're making is within your install base, those are warm leads because they're demonstrating intent and early days. That's where it makes sense to spend most of your time is usage base. They have intent. There's clearly some sort of a fit here, but as you mature as a company and you need to go into verticals that may not be familiar with Figma, they may not be as uh, tech forward, they may not be using these tools organically. What you're saying is the fit is there. You're the type of industry and type of company and type of persona that would fit. And you have to go to them in more of a top down manner, where you're saying, hey, based on your profile, you fit Figma. And I, I think you mentioned kind of the sales methodology is like, I'm sure the messaging is some sort of there's negative things happening. Here's here's kind of the state today. By adopting Figma, here are these positive impacts. It's like a version of pain gain. So I think it, that's the difference is like bottom up is you start this bottom layer of activity, go up to a decision maker. Now you're talking about top down where there is no organic activity, go to the decision maker and use kind of the strength of the fit of industry persona. And I think that's where messaging comes into play because you have to use a lot of social proof to say, similar people, similar organizations are getting benefit, you would too, and you can't lean on, you're using it standardized as much. Is, is that all kind of accurate? Accurate. And, and when you're going top down, you want to do your research on what the company is talking about. And so like for us, we literally might type in a company name plus design thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and then we can find a person who's talking about this at this company and then talk about Figma in a cold outreach and then have a really interesting conversation with them. And that is based on intent. That's what's cool about that is you find what they're talking about, your manufacturing intent and intent is much better to sell into than no intent. So I think that's a, for anyone listening, that's a cool way to think about it is how can you find your intent signals as organically and ideally cheaply as possible? And a Google search is a good way to do that. So this has been quite the crash course on how to sell, how to manage, how to look for amazing companies, where KP is going next. Um, (laughs) But uh, with all the hiring that Figma is going to be doing uh, in the near future, Marissa, what what can you share with our listeners and, and maybe how they can get in touch with you if they're interested in an opportunity? Yeah, we are hiring the, we are full speed ahead on, on the team for our roles. My team's our enterprise function. So if anyone is interested in 
coming to Figma, it's an amazing company. We have so much ahead. We're a two product company. We're going to have many more products down the road. So we're still very much in building phase. You can reach me on LinkedIn. I am Marissa Bell, and I will definitely follow up with you if you do. I hope to hear from you. Marissa, thank you so much for coming on. This has been so much fun. And I feel like we could do this for, like, there's just so many different topics that I'd love to dive deeper into, but uh, for next time, hopefully. Yes, definitely. Thanks so much, Marissa. This is awesome. Thank you. This is fun. Thanks, Marissa. This has been amazing. Appreciate it.